There is perhaps no greater battleground in the interpretation of the book of Revelation than the question of how we are to understand the battle of Armageddon. The only issue that may engender more debate is how we're to understand the millennium of Revelation chapter 20, which as we shall see is not entirely disconnected from the question at hand. And this is not merely an issue of idle speculation. This is not some eschatological football to be tossed around by end times fanatics and prophecy buffs and people who are just really into revelation stuff. I submit to you this morning that you must be concerned with the question of how to understand the battle of Armageddon because the conclusion that you reach has eternal significance for your soul. Let me tell you why. I want you to open with me to Revelation chapter 16, beginning in verse 12. The vision of the sixth bowl of wrath introduces the final battle, revealing how it is that Satan will gather his forces to himself for that final day. We read beginning in verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Now skip down to verse 16 which concludes the vision of the sixth bowl. It says, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now in between verses 12 and 14... And that description of how Satan gathers his forces for battle and verse 16, which gives the location of the final battle, we find this interjection in verse 15 from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He speaks directly to the church, to us, in the middle of this vision of the final battle of Armageddon. And he says to us, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and exposed. What is the significance of placing that blessing slash warning, that exhortation to readiness, in the midst of this sixth bowl of wrath and the description of the battle of Armageddon. Why is it here? That's what I want to know. Well, I think that from its sheer placement in Revelation 16, 15, in the middle of the sixth bowl of wrath, we can glean at least three truths. Number one, Christ's coming will occur in the midst of this final battle of Armageddon. Number two, the battle and Christ's imminent return to win the battle will take many by surprise. Hence the warning and the exhortation to readiness. See, if everyone saw it coming, there would be no need for the warning. So it's going to come surprisingly at a time when many do not expect. And number three, therefore, 
if we, the church to whom this warning is addressed, if we are to be ready for the battle and prepared for Christ's return, then we need to know what form this final battle will take so that we know what to watch for. The parables of Jesus with regard to our readiness at his return make it clear that those who are not ready, those who do not persevere to the end so as to be saved, are those who haven't rightly discerned the times. I'm thinking of Matthew 24 and the parable of the fig tree. Matthew 24, 32 to 33, Jesus says in the midst of a discourse where he's talking about his return at the end of the age, he says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he, the son of man, is near at the very gates. In other words, You can determine that summer is coming by looking at the sign from the fig tree, so you will know that the Son of Man is near when you discern the signs that He says are going to attend His imminent return. So the question of how we understand the last battle in the midst of which Jesus is coming back is not a matter of idle speculation. It is a matter of sincere, supreme importance affecting the perseverance of your faith and your everlasting salvation. There are high stakes at being wrong about the battle of Armageddon. If you're wrong, you run the risk of not being ready. So I plead with you, for your attention this morning. As we try to make some biblical sense of the witness to this final battle, lest it come upon us suddenly and unexpectedly and we be found among those who are unclothed, unarmed, and unready on the day of Christ's coming. I don't want that to be true for any of you. So give me your attention this morning. This is, I recognize, going to be a detailed sermon. But apply your attention, apply your heart to the truths we're going to unpack today. There are two views of this text that dominate modern evangelicalism. I'm I'm going to explain the first view from the commentary of what is probably its ablest defender alive today, Dr. John MacArthur. Now I'm choosing John MacArthur primarily because he's not some end-time whack you'll find on the Trinity Broadcasting Network or Daystar. Although I do not agree with his approach to Revelation, John MacArthur is, I want to be clear on this, he is a sound expositor, a godly pastor, and a man whom I greatly admire and respect. MacArthur takes a literal approach to Revelation, meaning that in general he takes the visions that we see in this book at face value and does not view them as symbolic. So, for instance, in Revelation chapter 7 and chapter 14, when John sees the 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel standing before the Lamb on Mount Zion, MacArthur takes that as a literal 144,000 Jewish evangelists from the literal 12 tribes of Israel standing atop the literal Mount Zion in Israel, in Jerusalem. 
MacArthur also takes a chronological or sequential approach to his study of Revelation, meaning that he sees the visions occurring in a generally chronological order, a sequential pattern. During a seven, a literal seven-year tribulation period. And so MacArthur sees the battle described in Revelation chapter 16 as necessarily distinct from the battle described in Revelation 20. In his view, Revelation 20 takes place after Revelation 16. Therefore, it's a different battle which takes place later. All right, I take a literary approach to the book of Revelation, meaning that I believe that John was writing within a particular literary genre or type of literature known as apocalyptic literature, which employs symbolic images and visions to reveal theological truths. Therefore, when I see the 144,000 of Revelation 7 and 14, I see an innumerable multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, the entire company of the redeemed, who are described as being from the 12 tribes of Israel because the new covenant views the redeemed as the true sons of Abraham, the true Israel of God. And Mount Zion in the New Testament does not refer to the literal temple mount in Jerusalem but rather to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city that has foundations, according to the book of Hebrews, the city that God has prepared for them that love Him. Hebrews 11.10, Hebrews 12.22, Hebrews 13.14. So MacArthur takes a literal approach. I take a literary approach. He takes a chronological approach, and I take a cyclical approach. Meaning that I believe that the visions are not arranged chronologically. I believe that they rather are, are vision cycles, seven of them to be exact, that, that portray the same events within the same time frame, the time frame of the last days between the first coming and the second coming of Christ, the days of tribulation. And it, it portrays them in seven different ways from seven different angles, but it's the same events in the same time frame. Therefore, when I view the battle described in Revelation 16 and see that it uses almost exactly the same language as the battle described in Revelation 20, I say, it's the same battle. This is why MacArthur takes a very literal approach to the battle of Armageddon. So just follow along, chapter 16, verses 12 through 16, and I'm going to give you his view which is probably the view that some of you came in with today. The great river Euphrates, verse 12, is the literal river which runs in a a generally north-south direction for 1,800 miles from Mount Ararat in modern-day Turkey down through Syria, down through Iraq, and empties out into the Persian Gulf. The Euphrates River once formed the eastern boundary of the Promised Land of Israel, And MacArthur believes that at the end of the tribulation period, the Euphrates will be literally dried up. It will will evaporate to prepare the way for a literal multinational invading army from the east. Could be Iran or Russia or China or all three. MacArthur's too cautious of 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 an expositor to speculate. Others are not nearly so careful. 
But much as the parting of the Red Sea led to the destruction of Pharaoh's army, so will this drying up of the Euphrates lead to the destruction of the army of the Antichrist or the beast. This multinational invading force will be gathered by the power of deception and signs and wonders, verses 14 and 15, performed by the demonic spirits that are sent out by the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. MacArthur says that this multinational force from the east will invade Israel and will assemble at a place called Armageddon, verse 16, which in Hebrew is really a combination word, har meaning mountain and magedon meaning Megiddo or the plain of Megiddo. That's a plain about 60 miles north of Jerusalem where some of the most important battles in Israel's history took place. This is where Barak defeated the Canaanites and where Gideon defeated the Midianites, Judges 5 and 6. According to MacArthur, the word har in Hebrew can also be translated hill country. And so MacArthur speculates that the final assembly of this multinational army will take place in the hill country which surrounds the, the plain of Megiddo or as it's known in the Old Testament, the Valley of Jezreel. Who will this multinational invading force be assembled to fight? According to MacArthur, they are invading the reconstituted and recently converted nation of Israel. MacArthur believes that the nation of Israel, which was reconstituted in 1948, will be converted to Christ in the aftermath of the great earthquake, which occurs sometime in the middle of that seven-year tribulation, as promised in Romans 11.26 and as recorded in Revelation 11.13. So when MacArthur in the middle of Revelation, which therefore is in the middle of the seven-year tribulation, when he reads this, 11.13, And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. He interprets that as some of the people died, a tenth of the city died, and nine-tenths of the city were converted to faith in Christ. So the Antichrist's invading force will come and will invade the now Christian nation of Israel. But they will be crushed by the judgment of God poured out in the seventh bowl of wrath, chapter 16, verses 17 to 21. As best as I can tell from his commentary on Revelation, MacArthur believes that the defeat of this enormous army will take place in three phases, each affecting not only the military force gathered in Israel, but unbelievers all over the globe. Okay, three phases of their defeat. Number one, there will be, chapter 16 and verse 18, a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. This earthquake, according to MacArthur, will renovate and reconfigure the earth in preparation for the millennial kingdom, thus restoring it to something like its pre-flood condition. So it's going to fundamentally alter the geographic landscape of the globe, uh, which is what he takes to to be the meaning of chapter 16 and verse 20 where John says that the islands fled away and the mountains were no more to be found. This will also create massive alterations in Jerusalem. That's what MacArthur identifies as the great city of verse 19. Thus fulfilling Old Testament prophecies and preparing Jerusalem to be the capital of 
the millennial kingdom. That's first phase. Great earthquake alters the landscape and uh, raises Jerusalem above all of the other cities of the earth. Number two, there will be great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, verse 21, which fall from heaven and crush the people on the earth. And number three, though it is not mentioned in Revelation 16, at that time, the Lord Jesus Christ will return on a white horse with a sharp sword in his mouth with which he will strike down the nations, 1915, and then the slaughter will be complete, 1921. Then, in MacArthur's end times scheme, will come the thousand year reign of Christ upon the earth centralized in the capital city of Jerusalem, all right? So this is the literal approach to the battle of Armageddon. It was the approach that I was taught when I was growing up. Uh, It was taught in every church of which I've ever been a member. It is a literal battle between literal armies assembled at a literal geographic location, The reconstituted and converted nation of Israel will be invaded and assaulted by the multinational forces of the Antichrist, which will sweep in from the east and gather in the hill country of Megiddo. But my question is, now, a year into our study of Revelation, is that the right approach? Is he right? Are you right? There's a lot of at stake. There's a lot at stake in that answer. Does it make the most sense of the entire biblical witness, not to mention the literary genre of the book of Revelation? Jesus tells us, Revelation 16, 15, be alert, be prepared, lest you be caught off guard like a soldier who is asleep and unarmed when the day of battle comes. So should you hear Jesus' warnings and conclude, I need to be prepared for the military assembling of nations and the ascent of a world leader empowered by Satan, a beast-like figure known as the Antichrist? Should I be watching CNN to see armies amassing on the Euphrates River and ready to invade the geopolitical nation of Israel? Or here's another question, does Jesus' warning to the church in Revelation 16:15 even apply to us since in MacArthur's end time scheme the church is going to be raptured out in Revelation 4 and aren't even going to be there in Revelation 16? Why are we even wasting our time with Revelation 16? Or could it be that the multitude of those who will commit apostasy at the end of the age, spoken of in Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 Timothy 4, will do so because they were unprepared, unarmed, and asleep for the tribulation and for the battle to come because they were always taught that they were going to be whisked away magically before it even took place. And therefore, when it came and they were found asleep and unarmed, they were ashamed and they walked out of the camp of the saints to join the camp of the beast, took his mark so as to save their life and lose their soul. There's got to be a better way, and there is. I have made no secret of the fact that I don't believe this literal approach to Revelation is either warranted or wise. 
I believe it completely ignores the genre of literature which John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, utilized. In the same way that you wouldn't read a poetry book like you're reading a newspaper, or that you wouldn't read the Proverbs like the book of Romans, Neither should you read the book of Revelation as if it's a history book telling you ahead of time literal descriptions that are going to take place exactly as they appear. It's not a prehistory book. Rather, I believe the best way to interpret Revelation and therefore the battle of Armageddon is to take the literary approach which recognizes the main body of Revelation for what it is. It is apocalyptic literature utilizing or containing a series of seven vision cycles that portray theological truths by means of highly symbolic and exaggerated images. Let me run that by you one more time. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature containing a series of seven vision cycles which visually portray theological truths using highly symbolic and highly exaggerated images like Revelation 13.1, the beast with ten horns and seven heads. Or Revelation 14.20, the winepress was trodden outside the city. Blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. That's symbolism. That's what John intended under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it conveys a truth, which is that the wrath of God, when it is poured out upon this earth, will be fierce. To ignore this fact and treat the symbols as literal descriptions is to miss the point entirely. And we don't want to do that. We want to rightly divide the word of truth, and take the Bible for what it is in the genre of literature that it is delivered to us. You read Gospels as Gospels. You read letters as letters. You read history as history. And you read Revelation as symbolic. Furthermore, because of the cyclical structure of the visions of Revelation as opposed to MacArthur's chronological structure, we, could, we should take into account that Revelation 16 isn't the only place that the battle of Armageddon appears. In fact, it appears seven other times, six other times in the book of Revelation. It's the same battle in chapter 6, verses 12 to 17, the sixth seal. Chapter 9, verses 13 to 21, the sixth trumpet. Chapter 11, verses 7 to 13. Chapter 11, verses 17 and 18. Chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. Chapter 20, verses 7 to 10. So I think the best way forward, in, in, in about the 15 minutes that I have left, what I'm going to do, I'm going to take the battle of Armageddon from all of these texts of Revelation, but centrally in Revelation chapter 16, and I want to answer three questions about the battle. Number one, we're going to identify the combatants. Who are the sides in this battle? Number two, we're going to talk about the location of the battle. What is Armageddon? And number three, we're going to talk about the nature of the final battle. Let's look first at the combatants in the battle of Armageddon. Should we expect at the end of the age 
a multinational military invasion of the geopolitical nation of Israel? No. Next question. No, I'm kidding. Let's look again at Revelation 16, 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. All right? So the kings from the east are coming. Who are the kings from the east? Well, John continues in verses 13 and 14. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings, now not only of the east, but of the whole world, to assemble them, the kings of the whole world, for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So now, just two verses later, they are not merely the kings from the east, but the kings of the whole world who assemble for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So evidently, every nation of the world is involved in this final battle. All right, what else can we glean from the rest of Revelation? Well, in Revelation chapter 6, John describes the sixth seal as the great day of their wrath, which I take to mean the same thing as the great day of God the Almighty in Revelation 16. And he writes, verse 15 of chapter 6, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and to the rocks, saying, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So according to Revelation 6, those involved, affected, and defeated in the final battle are not only the kings from the east, are not only the kings of the whole world together with their armies, but now are everyone who is not sheltered from the wrath of the Lamb by the seal of the living God. Everyone. Revelation 19.18 The enemies of Christ in the last battle are described as kings, captains, mighty men, horses and their riders, and all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Revelation 20 and verse 8, the adversaries of Christ in, once again, the war, the battle. Same, same phrase used in 20 and 19 and 16. The adversaries of Christ in the battle are said to be the nations that are at the four corners of the earth and their number is like the sand of the sea. So the enemy combatants in the last battle are described over the course of Revelation, as all unbelieving peoples of the earth, everyone who has received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image, not just the Russians, not just the Iranians, not just the Chinese, every unbeliever, which ought to cause us to wonder what kind of battle is this, that every unbeliever on the face of the earth is involved. And against whom do they make war? So on one side of the battle of Armageddon, you've got every follower of the beast who is anyone who's not a follower of the Lamb. So who are they making war against? Let me just roll through this real quick. 11.7, and when they, 
They are the two prophets which symbolize the church and its prophetic witness to the world. When they have finished their testimony, the beast rises up from the bottomless pit to make war on them and conquer them and kill them. So the church is made war upon. Chapter 12 and verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman. That's the corporate church. And went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. That's the individual saints. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Chapter 13 and verse 7. Also it, the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. Chapter 17, verse 14. They, the beast and the ten kings, will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them because He is King of kings and Lord of lords and those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. In other words, the saints. Chapter 19 and verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against Him who was sitting on the horse. That's Jesus. And against His army. That's again the saints. Chapter 20 and verse 9. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city but fire came down from heaven and consumed them it's the same from the beginning to the end of revelation those whom the beast and his armies that is all who bear his mark and worship his image all unbelievers those whom they make war against are the prophets the 144,000 who are sealed the armies of heaven the church of jesus christ the saints who bear His name and His Father's name on their forehead. In other words, us. The beast and his followers will make war on the Lamb and His followers. The church. That's why Jesus says we must be ready, vigilant, armed, and dressed for battle. It's coming to you. So beginning with this fundamental truth that the final battle is between the armies of the beast, unbelievers, and the armies of the lamb, believers, where is this final battle to take place? Well, Revelation 16.16 says this, And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. I think that's a symbolic location. I think the final battle, as we will define it momentarily, will take place in every nation of the world. I'm going to give you seven reasons why. So listen fast. Buckle your theological seatbelts. Here they are. See if you agree. Reason number one. As I mentioned earlier, in Hebrew, Har Magadon, Armageddon, translates to the Mount of Megiddo. But Megiddo is actually a plain. It's really a valley. 60 miles north of Jerusalem where nothing exists that even resembles a mountain, which I think points to its symbolic nature. Reason number two. The plain of Megiddo is laden with Old Testament significance as the place where the enemies of God met their destruction by God's miraculous intervention. As in the Canaanites, Judges 5, and the Amalekites and Midianites in Judges 6. Number three, 
Well, let me say this. It would therefore seem natural to me to symbolically stage the final battle between the people of God and the enemies of God in the location where battles of that sort took place in Israel's history. All right, number three. Most Old Testament prophecy places the location of the final battle not at Megiddo, but at Jerusalem and Mount Zion. Joel 2, Micah 4, Zechariah 12 and 14. Number four. John himself describes the location of the final battle as the city, that is Jerusalem, in chapter 14 and verse 20. The great city, that is Sodom slash Egypt slash Jerusalem, in chapter 11 and verse 8. And the beloved city, where the saints are encamped, in chapter 20 and verse 9. So where is it going to take place? Does it take place at the city or does it take place at Megiddo? Or are both of those symbolic locations? Number five, in New Covenant imagery, Mount Zion and Jerusalem, where chapter 20 locates the battle, are symbols of the abode of the saints, as in, for instance, Hebrews chapter 12. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The heavenly Jerusalem. He says to the, to the Jewish Christians gathered in Rome, you have come. They're, they're, they're geographically in Rome, but he says, you are, have come to Mount Zion, that is, to the heavenly Jerusalem. That's the way the new covenant uses the language of Zion, and it's used the same way in the book of Revelation. It's not a geographical location, it's a spiritual location. Wherever the church is gathered, on earth and in heaven, is Zion. Number six. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, the enemies of God, the the shadowy figure known as Gog of Magog. We'll get to him in just a few weeks. They, They come from the uttermost parts of the earth. They march across the Euphrates River with an innumerable multitude and they march against Israel to be suddenly defeated by God. This is the prophecy of Ezekiel for the end times. Ezekiel 38.22, with pestilence and bloodshed I will enter into judgment with him and I will reign upon him and upon his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones and fire and sulfur. Alright, what does that mean? Ezekiel, God prophesying through Ezekiel says, at the end of the age... Gog of Magog, whoever that is, is going to come. Their numbers are going to be like the sand of the seashore. They're going to march on Israel. And when I bring them into my land, I'm going to pour down fire and sulfur on them. And I'm left, what does that mean? But I don't have to wonder because John, the New Testament interpreter of that Old Testament image, tells me. He takes that image and he says, here church, here's what it means. At the end of the age, John cha- or Revelation chapter 20 and verse 7, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. That's what it means. The nations will march against the saints and against 
the beloved city. In other words, they will make war upon and march against the church. And where is the church located in the last days? The church is located in every nation of the earth. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. If the saints, the church, are located in every nation around the globe, then the final battle in which the beast and his followers make war on the saints must take place in every nation around the globe. Which means that the final battle of Armageddon cannot be a military invasion of the geopolitical nation of Israel. But is rather an all-out global final assault of the dragon and the beast against the church of Jesus Christ. The dragon, that is Satan, has raised up the beast, that is the political power of the state and the false prophet that is the religious and cultural power of the world to gather the nations to himself and at the end of the age when the thousand years that's also symbolic are over satan will be unleashed by the providence of god to deceive the nations of the earth and to gather them together for battle chapter 20 and verse 8 it will be deception at the end of the age that will reign and there will be no place for truth. This is graphically displayed here in Revelation chapter 16. In the frogs that come forth from the mouth of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. These frogs, John says, are unclean spirits. Demonic spirits performing signs to deceive the nations and gather them for battle. It's displayed in Revelation chapter 9 when that demon cavalry that is released from the Euphrates River, there's the link between 9 and 16, released from the Euphrates River, they go and they kill a third of mankind with the fire and smoke and sulfur that came out of their mouths, which we saw was deception spewing from their lips. It's foretold in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9. Stay with me, I'm almost done. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9 where Paul says that the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so to be saved. Therefore God sends a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So let me wrap it up. Let me wrap it all up. Give me your attention. Here's what I think the battle of Armageddon means. The beast, that is the power of the state used for evil, satanic purposes, and the false prophet, that is the religious and cultural powers that are allied with the beast, they've been active throughout this age. That is why from the time that Christ ascended and the last days began. There have been periods and pockets of persecution all around the world almost ceaselessly. But at the end of the age, at the end of this age, just before Christ's return, at a time and an hour known only to the Father, Satan will be unleashed and the beast and the false prophet will have a power never before seen on the face of the earth. 
there will be a satanically empowered, unified persecution of the saints of God in every nation of the world. In Russia, in China, in North Korea, in India, in Canada, in the United States. Churches will be shut down. Christians will be imprisoned and impoverished. They will be culturally and economically marginalized. The saints will be as sheep to be slaughtered. Everywhere. Not only the beast, but everyone who takes his mark and worships his image will join in the war upon the saints. Just as Jesus said, brother will deliver brother over to death. A father, his child, children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But it's the one who perseveres to the end who will be saved. The final battle will be a war upon the church, not with swords of steel, but with swords of truth and deception. And it will bring persecution of an extent and an intensity such as the world has never before seen. That's why Jesus says in verse 15, be ready. Clothe yourself in the armor of truth. The power of deception will be exceedingly strong. The threat of death will be imminent upon the church. And many, many, many within the visible church, and I pray none of you, but many within the visible church will be found sleeping naked and exposed. And when the hour comes and they're faced with the deception, confess Christ or lose your life, they will abandon the camp of the saints. They'll go over enemy lines in order to save their life and they will lose their soul. And Jesus says, don't let that happen. Be looking for it. Be alert. Be aware. And just when it seems that all hope is lost, that the dragon has won, the beast has conquered, the camp of the saints is surrounded, the sheep are being slaughtered everywhere, at that very moment the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. I don't know how it's going to look on that last day exactly. It's spoken of in many different ways in the Scriptures. In Matthew 24, the Son of Man comes on the clouds with power and great glory. In 2 Thessalonians 2, he appears in order to kill the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth. In 2 Peter 3, the heavens pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies are burned up and the earth is consumed by fire. In Revelation 6, there's a great earthquake. The sun becomes black. The moon turns to blood. The stars fall to the earth and the sky is rolled up like a scroll. In Revelation 14, the Son of Man comes as a harvester with a sharp sickle in his hand to gather his wheat into the barn and to gather the grapes into the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. In Revelation 16, there's a great earthquake and great hailstones from heaven that come down and crush the wicked. In Revelation 19, he comes on a white horse with the armies of heaven with a sharp sword in his mouth with which to strike down the nations. 
In Revelation chapter 20, fire comes from heaven to consume the beast and his army who will march upon and surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Lots of images. I don't know exactly how it's going to look, but this I do know with certainty, and I would stake my life and yours upon it. Christ will come after a great tribulation, after a great war upon the saints. And when he does, he will rescue his faithful elect and he will bring fierce wrath upon the rest of mankind. He will raise the dead for judgment, the believers to everlasting life, the unbelievers to everlasting condemnation. He will dissolve this present created order and he will bring forth a new creation and then he will dwell forever with his redeemed people in everlasting joy in a new heaven and a new earth. And the only question that I have by way of application this morning is, will you be among them? Will you be among the awake and alert and the ready? Or will you be among those who have been lulled to sleep, made drowsy by the deception that is even now encircling this entire globe? Whether you are among them depends entirely on whether you stay awake and keep your garments on. I have preached this message with the aim to alert you and awaken you to what is to become to what is beginning even now. And all I can do at this point is to pray that God would give you ears to hear. So that's what I'm going to do. We're out of time this morning. I'm going to pray for you and then we're going to close. Are you awake? Are you alert? Do you belong to Christ? Are you prepared to stand on the truth when all the world abandons you. We need to pray. Our Father, I pray for every person here. This has been a different morning. The flow of the service has been different. We've had some technical distractions we don't normally have. But I believe that you have answered my prayer that the word would still come with power. There is coming a battle. And that battle will be fought upon the battleground of the truth of Scripture. The deity of Christ. The necessity of faith. The resurrection and judgment to come. I pray right now for your saints. I pray that they would remain alert, awake, armed for the battle. That's what we try to do every week, week in and week out. We try to awaken and arm your saints. And I pray for any here who would be in the congregation. Wandering in this morning, maybe they've been coming for a while, maybe this is the first time. And by your spirit, something clicked. And they now know what truth is and that they've been on the wrong side of it. Would you bring them, bring them to faith, bring them to confidence?
bring them to a steadfast stance on the truth of Scripture. Lord, prepare Your saints for what is to come. That we, unlike so many, would persevere to the end and so be saved. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.